John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 372.AM0214, certificate number 41961, the doomsday flight. Because the bomb is on the airplane, there's no doubt about that. I put it there. I'm the only one who knows where it is. Yes, go ahead. Well, first of all, it's an aneroid bomb consisting of a barometer, a stepping relay which is thrown when the required altitude is reached, there's an electric wire. John, are you, uh, are you like me? Did you grow up watching The Twilight Zone? I did. Uh, for futurelings who think that all of 20th and 21st century culture is compressed and all happened within a few hours of itself, that wasn't true for us. No. In the 1970s and 80s, Twilight Zone reruns, which were first in black and white and second seemed like beacons from a thousand years prior. Nothing like them on TV when I was a kid. No, dark and scary, but also spooky and smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were on reruns. When did you watch it? I watched it on Sunday afternoon, Saturday and Sunday afternoon before Star Trek reruns. They would always be Twilight Zone. Or did you watch it at night? At night. Uh, That's the canonical thing, watching Twilight Zone marathons at night. And I always missed it. Yeah, my mom had a had a new boyfriend in about 1977. Was it Rod Serling? It wasn't Rod Serling. He was a but he had he had four kids. His wife had died. He smoked a pipe and was an engineer. Like, wait, wait, was it Rod Serling? It, it was. <laughs> he was such a, a throwback to an earlier time. Like he he sat in his den smoking a pipe, and his kids came in and gave him reports on their day. And then other than that, he tried not to interact with his kids, really, as far as I could tell. Living the dream. So I was thrown in with these four siblings, and uh, there was a boy my age, but none of us in the whole group liked him very much. He was sort of a, I don't know, he was just like a sort of a wormy kid. But, the, but his older- <laughs> You're not bro- helping blend the family, John. Not really, but his older brother, who kind of was the like mother of the family, took me under his wing as his new little brother. Oh. And so we would stay up late and watch the Twilight Zone, which was like, it felt very forbidden. Every aspect of it felt like forbidden, that I had been tapped into some adult world. And it, it had a, a powerful effect on me. When I show it to my kids, they are not scared, but I'm a little younger than you, which means around the, t- not t- a few years after I started watching Twilight Zone reruns on TV, 
the movie came out, the 80s movie came out, the one where John Landis killed the kids. Right. I think that's the subtitle. Yeah. Twilight Zone, colon, well, not the one just where the John kids. Landis killed the kids and Vic Morrow. And Vic Morrow. From Combat. I, I don't know. I just have a bigger heart and I'm worried more You're about worried the more Vietnamese kids. About the kids being killed. Uh, uh, decapitated. Let's just say it for what geez, it is. What a t- like if you're going to kill John Landis, if you're going to kill some kids, yeah. don't yeah. decapitate I mean, them there, with a helicopter. There are a lot of ways to kill someone before you actually use a helicopter as the weapon. So you're saying John Lennon has probably killed other people. I mean, if you're- During if, the Blues Brothers? Before you get up to helicopter, I'm sure you've tried to kill someone with a screwdriver at least. Right. Like, it's like serial killers as kids. Major escalation. Uh, and that movie is genuinely scary, I think, in, in kind of a modern 80s music sting kind of a way. Because there's grossness too, or I mean, right? There's- Yeah. There's very little grossness in the original- in no, the original It's all very TV. elegant and gothic and- uh, and my kids like the twists in a, yeah, and my kids like the twists in an O. Henry way, uh-huh. but they're not like I was when I was a kid, which is like Twilight Zone is spooky grown up TV. Why am I watching this? Yeah, right, because it because it suggests a supernatural world, but one that's kind of mechanical and not. There does not appear to be a loving, caring God behind what's happening. It's like a Black Mirror version of. Here's my pitch for Twilight Zone. It's Black Mirror, but without tech. Yeah, right. No <laughs> tech at all. But but there is but there does there is an unseen hand in Twilight Zone that, but you're not clear. Like it's never st- stipulated what exactly. It's Stephen King like, right? There's no people often having to discover the rules as they go. Why is this guy on the wing? Why why do I have this mystery box at the diner? Yeah, um, how did this kid become all powerful and what's the new expectation? Do you have um do you have favorite episodes to this day? How how big of a fan are you? I mean, I'm as we've discovered being friends over time, I I'm not a fan. You know, I don't have that fan culture in me, so I don't I'm not asking if you had the lunchbox. But in the same uh, uh, not only did I not have the lunchbox, but like, am I enough of a fan that I had favorite episodes? I guess I don't catalog things that way. The way that nerd culture I know. catalogs. I'm not things. asking if you have a, tr- a, a I can't make a you, Simpsons a reference Buzz about piece. it. I can't. <laughs> I don't have any action figures. I don't. But yeah, of course, right? Like the, what are the meaningful Twilight Zones? The, the one where the guy breaks his, he's finally alone to read and he breaks his glasses mm. and you're just left thinking like, he's got all the time in the world in an empty world. Surely he can figure out how to work. He he can learn optometry, right? And make himself some new glasses. <laughs> but as the camera pans out, you know, watching it the first time, you're just like, what a gnarly. It's like the genie offered him three wishes, but he didn't think it through all the way. So you want to do a sequel where he's wandering through the rubble, trying on people's unbroken eyeglasses. Yeah. Or like he goes to an optometrist shop and start opening the manuals and trying to figure out how to work the machines, but he can't see. If it, if the apocalypse had just come like 10 years later, there would have been books on tape, basically. Yeah. Right. He just had to wait for books on but tape. But no, he loves to read. That's the thing. And, the, and of course, the kid that has the power to... Uh, yeah, Billy Mumy from Twilight Zone. Right, who has the power to, to wish you away to the wish cornfield. you away. That's the one that scared me when they adapted it in the in the eighties movie. In the eighties movie, that was super scary in the fifties one, and then the famous one of the the crazy monkey dragon that's on the wing of the plane ripping the. I think I remember that Shatner. better from the Shat from the uh, John Lithgow from the Lithgow revisit. But I, I remember the Shatner. I one. saw that first. The Shatner one's very good. Mm-hmm. Somehow he gets a gun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you got a gun on a plane in uh, 
Oh, back then. I mean, everybody had, I mean, I remember. That's actually going to come up in our story today. Before 9-11, there were a couple of times when I had so many box cutters in my suitcases, I could barely get them into the overhead container. There's an episode of uh, the John Lithgow sitcom Third Rock for the Sun where uh, Third Rock from the Sun, mm-hmm. I think I said Third Rock for the Sun. Thir- third, Let yeah. me offer this to you, Mr. Sun, this offering, a Third Rock. A Third Rock. Uh, send your rays down upon it. I am he as you are he. <laughs> John Lithgow um, is welcoming his alien overlord, William Shatner, at the airport. And Shatner's like, it's a terrible flight. Like there was, a, I kept seeing crazy stuff on the wing of the plane. And Lithgow's like, that happened to me once. <laughs> Great television writing. I bet there was a Simpsons episode about that. I was thinking of, there are plenty of Twilight Zone call outs on the Simpsons. I was thinking about the Burgess Meredith one because that's an episode about nuclear war, but it really does not make any kind of social statement. It's really kind of matter of fact. Oops, the world ended while you were reading David Copperfield in the bank vault and and what, we're just waiting for the crowning irony, you know? Um, and I was thinking about that because in our timeline a couple of weeks ago, a prominent creep who is getting advanced to high government office said that all the allegations being made against him were just crazy and from the Twilight Zone. Oh. The, na- the name of the show has entered our culture as a way of saying weird stuff. Although it has, but it only resonates with people at a past a certain age, right? I mean, someone, that's true? I think someone who's 35 would use a different reference. They would get a Twilight Zone reference, but they're not going to say, whoa, that's really Twilight Zone. What do you say if you're younger? Bizarro world? That's even... I think probably... Even, I mean, now I hear a lot of Black Mirror references. It's a... But you can't use it for the same thing. You can't say like, well, this hearing is totally Black Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> it, would be, it would mean something different. It, it would, would be somebody put implants in him and made him assault women, right, you know, right. with his new brain pieces. Yeah, um, I, I guess it's I guess it's in the lexicon, but I, but I feel it, like It comes from aviation, by the way, or at least that's what Serling said. Twilight Do, Zone? As a pilot, have you ever heard anyone talk about the Twilight Zone? N- not. The, the term has... Right, but predating the show. I was not, I was not a pilot before... Twilight Zone came out. I guess people wouldn't say it anymore now that it's the name of a TV show. Just like I don't say Third Rock for the Sun anymore. <laughs> I guess Serling said he later heard from pilots that it's um, when you're coming in on approach, but you can't see the horizon anymore, which I guess would be a difficult stage in the landing of a plane. Yeah, for sure. And I guess maybe military aviators called that the Twilight Zone, when you need to put the plane down, but you no longer have the horizon for reference. There is a thing, and you see this in skiing, you see this in a lot of uh, situations where you're in terrain uh, that varies and and light plays a big factor in kind of how you're... We, as skiers, you see it quite a bit where as the light changes and you get into that twilight, you get what's called flat light, where it just flattens out all the geographical bumps and, and ruts and snow stuff. Snow doesn't stand out against snow. Right, Be- because you get that, that horizontal light mm. and that flat, flat light becomes incredibly dangerous because you're skiing along and, I mean, the ground could drop away and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to perceive it. Do skiers call it the twilight zone? No, they call it flat light. Oh. They're not like, hey, we're in a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. Typically, skiers don't think that way, no. And I mean, they do think about the fifth dimension, but it's more about like getting- The cr- band? It's about getting crazy air. They also think about the fifth dimension, the band. Once Walkman were invented, people started to- Skiing must have gotten so much better, right? Up, up, and away. Is it, it safe to ski with, with uh, earbuds in? People love to do it. I never really got that into it because I refuse to spend that much money on batteries. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's why my Discman was always kind of sitting on the shelf. Because you like you'd play two CDs 
And then you'd have to replace six AA batteries. I had a really early Walkman, one that had an AM FM radio and like little orange tufty headphones. And I put it on at the top of a ski mountain one time with like Exile on Main Street in it. And I skied to the bottom. I was like, that's the greatest experience of my life. Like I will never, life will never be the Did same. Did everything sync up? Like oh. Wizard, Wizard of Oz and Dark Side of the Moon? You're just like skiing and you're just. The Rolling Stones must've been skiing this mountain when they recorded It was this. incredible. But this was back at a time when I would actually like light a cigarette when I got off the chair and like ski with a cigarette dangling, dangling. out of my mouth. Cause I was such a, I don't know, I was such a sleaze. But then, uh, then the batteries ran out on the thing and I just threw it in a drawer. Oh, the thing I was going to say about, um, you know, using the twilight zone to mean I'm in a bizarre situation as, um, judge Crepo did is that, uh, people were replying to him and saying like, oh, you mean the twilight zone, that show about white suburban conformists finally getting their comeuppance. Whoa. And I realized people had this idea that there was a lot of social issues on the twilight zone. Hmm. And that's not actually true. I think. Um, yeah, Ser- Serling was socially, Rod Serling, the creator of the show was socially conscious for sure. Absolutely. But, his, but the show itself was about. The wh- show's a real throwback. Well, but it was about modern anxiety, but it wasn't social anxiety as much as it was. Um, I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of technology in the world of the show, but the anxiety was something different. I, I always felt like it was a transition to modernity. That was the source of like all of the post-war fear that the, powered there's that There's a show. lot of, the Twilight Zones, I can think of about technology going wrong. It's actually like cars and airplanes and cameras. Yeah. There's not a lot of, um, even, there, you know. There weren't computers, right? Or not that anybody thought about. I guess there were big room-sized computers. But they weren't doing anything yet, right? They're, but you're right. It, but it's a lot of kind of individual neurosis. There's a lot of men in gray flannel suits on the train wishing they were back in their hometowns. Uh-huh. I, I love those episodes. Uh-huh. And there's some kind of general, there's, there's a really great episode that's an end of the world, a very visceral end of the world thing called the midnight sun, where the planet is warming because something has changed in the earth's orbit. Have you seen this one? I don't think so. Paintings are melting off walls. Everybody's just flop sweating. You know, the world's going to, the world's going to be on fire. It's, it's really great. And it's got the all time kind of dumb, facile twist ending that I love. But, um, super prescient episode, given that the paintings (laughs) are literally melting off the walls in our, in our basement room here. But it's not nuclear. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's maybe a metaphor for nuclear fears, but that's all very similar. There's hardly any episodes about the bomb or about race or about the South or, you know what I'm saying? Well, Um, but the, the, the repliers who were, were saying, oh, the twilight zone, you mean this metaphor for uh, white anxiety, the repliers who would say that are also finding secret messages about white anxiety everywhere they look. They're also very young and were not watching the Twilight Zone. Like, like it's been received knowledge to them that, you know, they saw the the monsters would do on Maple Street and they like, ooh, that's one where a community breaks down because of its own inner suspicions. But that's, I think that's very rare. Most episodes are just straight up throwback kind of, what if you got three wishes? What if the devil came and X? Right. You know, what if you had a paw that could blah, blah, blah. Like a lot of the Twilight Zone is just straight up what if kind of glossy magazine fantasy stories. I always wondered about the writer's room for Twilight Zone, even before I knew what a writer's room was. But now that you describe it that way, like, what if you got three wishes? Go. Like, you could see five smart people putting together a Twilight episode pretty fast. To this day, I'll see on the internet, you know, writing prompts, and it's straight up Twilight Zone pitches. 
It's like you go to whatever and then and then it's like some little twist. And then God says, No way. Right. The devil created me. <laughs> you know. What? Uh, and it's straight up Twilight Zone pitches. Serling wrote a ton of episodes for the show he created. He was a we think of him as the narrator of the show, but he was actually kind of a reluctant narrator. He was the writer and producer and creator. But he was a perfect face for noir television. Like he seemed dark and dangerous and not humorless, but... He is kind of a, a... He does seem like kind of an implacable puppet master, right? He does. Like, he's... He watches all this stuff go down and just... It doesn't even really wink He's just at you. standing he's there. Just like, the camera yeah. whips over to something awful happening, and he's just standing by the uh, elevator shaft or by the cab stand being like, presented for your approval, you know? I'm about <laughs> to ruin this woman's life. She doesn't know. She's about to enter. The Twilight Zone. He did not... Uh, when In the first season, when the narrations are just... Uh, spoken. They're just voiceover. You didn't see Serling at all in the first season. And he was happy to do that. Uh, the network wanted, everyone wanted Orson Welles. And he was like, that's totally wrong. We don't want booming Orson Welles. Um, so he was like, what if I did it? But then later when they put him on camera, he just had terrible stage fright. And is uh, he smoking in some of them? Does he have a cigarette in his hand? Chesterfield cigarettes was the sponsor. Uh So, uh, even, you know, when they'll come back from break and he'll be like, nothing like the smooth taste of Chesterfield cigarettes. The whole show seems kind of shrouded in like blue cigarette smoke. He died, by the way, a heart attack at age 50 while he was mowing his lawn. Oh, no. From smoking two to three packs of Chesterfields a day. That's a terrible end to this story. This is the worst episode we've ever done. And that concludes. (laughs) I thought it would have more to do with the Doomsday Flight, this whole episode. Yeah. I thought there there would be more. It was really about Rod Serling's short, too short life. And how he should have got like a guy to do his yard. Basically, that's 50, the lesson. Age 50, that used to seem so old to me. Well, it is old if you're smoking three packs of Chesterfield. <laughs> that's true. That's it's like true. the high end of of, uh, of life. But he uh, he was very uncomfortable on camera and any direction they tried to give him would backfire. And finally, they were just like, okay, Rod, do it the weird way you talk. Right, and that's why he's you. kind of speaking out of the corner of his mouth and he only has his teeth clenched. Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of the weird way he talked that nobody could talk him out of. But it does feel very Walter Winchell or very mid-century modern. Kind of because he's the face of it. He's for the us. face of mid-century modern for us. True. But yeah, he is an authoritative uh, white guy who's, and it makes the show very, it gives a kind of weird verisimilitude to the show. That this actually is a diner somewhere off some highway, and let's see what's going to happen to this young couple. Yeah, he's got the skinny tie and the the tailored suit of that era of Kennedy and Frank Sinatra. But he's the, handsome. He's handsome, but he's he's not smooth or he's not pulling babes in Vegas. He's off in the cornfield, like watching the real, watching the the portal open to what we all fear, which is like now that we've split the atom, maybe the dragons that live in the center of the earth are, are actually going to start appearing. I wonder if the men in black archetype owes something to Serling. You know, anytime something weird to. happens, a, a guy in a trim mid-century suit shows up and uh, walks you through it. I'm sure that's why it's in all of our mind, right? That that's what a government agent looks like, that that's what a, that's what the repo man is. The guy in repo man with the eye patch, who's got the glowing trunk right. full of stuff. He has that. He has that kind of quality that he belongs in a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, Serling like never had any other job but writer. After he he served in World War II and earned a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. And when he came home, he all he wanted to do was he'd been one of these kids that was always writing stuff for the class play and the uh-huh. drama club. And he got immediately got into radio and TV. And back then, uh, 
It's the weirdest thing. A TV writer could become a celebrity. I don't, do we, do we have, I guess we ha- kind of have that again today, right? The Aaron Sorkins and, you know, the showrunners. Yeah. People know who, you know, David Chase from Sopranos or Vince Gilligan from Breaking Bad. We again live in a time where a TV writer can be a celebrity. But back then he would write these hour long or 90 minute um, little teleplays for these theater shows, Playhouse 90 or the, the mobile Texaco hour or whatever. In the early days of television, when we were still trying to figure out what people, what is this for? What people wanted, right? Do, do they want to see vaudeville? Do they want to, do they want to see books on tape? What is it? And a lot of it was people are going to want to see movies. They're not going to want to go to the new Western at their movie house three times a week like they used to. What if they sat at home and watched a movie? Right. This was supposed to be the death of Hollywood, right? The first time that Hollywood was threatened by a new medium. Um, people weren't going to go to see movies anymore. And, and um, I presume it's in the future. People, movies still exist, even though there's hundreds of other options. Hollywood keeps figuring it out, keeps figuring out how to get huge budget films made and still make huge amounts of money from it. The answer, uh, oddly today, appears to be only make adaptations of 60s comic books. Uh-huh. Spend $200, $300 million on a, on a big movie about some 60s comic book. And that will keep the industry afloat. I miss like smart, big-hearted rom-coms. Do they still make smart, big-hearted rom-coms? Almost never, but in our time, in our very specific time, there's in a this new, present moment. There's a new one about rich Asians, which is a mega hit. Oh, and kind of suggests that there was an audience for rom-coms. It was just not; they were not being made. You would not think I was the target audience of rom-coms, and I wouldn't think I was either. But when I feel nostalgia for the 80s and 90s uh, when in Hollywood. What kind of movie are you picturing here? Like some straight up Kate Hudson, Matthew McConaughey kind of crap? Oh, I, I don't want to see a movie with Matthew McConaughey in it. No, I'm talking about like. John Hughes, no? No, that was, those were teen movies, although I loved those too. No. Uh, when Harry Met Sally. Sally right, Efrani, Rob Reinery, yeah, Chevy Chasey, Goldie Hawney. Yeah, where the, the, the actors aren't necessarily the most beautiful people. They're just sort of regular people who are navigating some kind of, I mean, you don't look at Tom Hanks and think romantic lead, but all of those. That's exactly what I think when I look at Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. I'm like matinee idol, Billy Crystal. Not romantic lead, but if you put Meg Ryan in a film, she can make any middle-aged dumpy guy seem like so charming just because Meg Ryan's reflective. That is the double standard of those, right? Because it's never, you know, it's always an, it's always a beautiful woman. Right. It's just the guy who's, who's dumpy. Well, except the beautiful woman in those rom-coms, it always suffers from a ton of anxiety and strange, like personal uh, issues. So she levels, she (laughs) levels down to like Billy Crystal uh, level because she just can't get a hold of her, her crazy cat lady inside. It's also the, um, you know, kind of the male screenwriter trope that she's beautiful, but doesn't know how beautiful she's she is. She's her manic pixie dream girl for <laughs> sure. Yeah. She just puts a pair of glasses on and all of a sudden she's very homely. Uh, Serling's early work was actually not kind of the romantic nostalgic stuff you might imagine from Twilight Zone. He wasn't the best writer on that show, by mm. the way. Like a lot of his episodes are kind of weak. It was guys like, he got Richard Matheson, the I Am Legend guy, and uh, Charles Beaumont, and all these great magazine writers. And sci-fi writers. To ada- yeah, to adapt their kind of... Because back then, there was an audience. It was kind of a ama- They weren't just writing in pulps, you know? The, there were stories in the Saturday Evening Post that had kind of a cutesy fantasy twist that these guys could make a good living off of. But this was sort of the heyday of... Or the early days of, like, 
mainstream science fiction. Yeah, Ray Bradbury was kind of on the scene making it okay. Harlan Ellison. Yeah, that it was kind of arty now. It wasn't just something embarrassing that nerds read in pulps. Right. Um, Bradbury wrote a single episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, he adapted his story, The Elect- or I Sing the Body Electric, about mm-hmm. the kids, they get the, uh, the robot grandma. Um, and this was also a, this, I mean, uh, you mentioned Burgess Meredith, but there are a lot of cameos of actors who were famous at the time or became famous later. Some that became super famous. There's an episode where, um, I think it's Gladys Cooper plays a woman who's avoiding death. And when death shows up, he's a beautiful blonde waspy policeman and it's Robert Redford. Have you seen this one? Oh, wow. I do. I have seen that. So it might be like one of his very first parts. He's an angel of death. There's also another one where, um. Shakespeare uh, comes to the modern day and writes, starts writing new material and uh, it, he gets annoyed because it gets performed by a, a Brando type who wants to, you know, just kind of wear an undershirt and kind of sp- improvise and Shakespeare's very annoyed and it's Burt Reynolds. Oh! Doing a, an amazing doing Brando, a Brando impression, yeah. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. But Sterling was, uh, you know, recognized as a great writer. He was a brand before Twilight Zone started. He had written... Requiem for a Heavyweight, the super acclaimed Playhouse 90, and a, an episode of another uh, anthology called Patterns, I think about a, a businessman who must reckon with his life, kind of a, some kind of Don Draper kind of a thing. And so he was recognized as one of these guys who could elevate television, which was thought of as a junk medium. Right. Uh, but now, oh, he, we've got an artist here, and this is exactly what we need to examine the issues of our day. Because he was interested in issues, just not so much in Twilight Zone. And this was the first, I guess, what you would call heyday of television. I mean, after the original heyday of television, the I Love Lucy heyday, but this was when television became smart. It was what middle class people did when they went home at night. And this is the kind of first time it's been pitched as something you would you would want to watch and not just something funny to have on in the background. You know, your funny friends. Let's let's hang out with Milton Berle for an hour or Sid Caesar. Yeah, there there was more there was more stimulating content than just laugh track stuff. And, uh, I guess Serling kind of got frustrated with the, uh, the strictures of sponsors and networks telling him, I, I think he wrote a teleplay about the Senate and was not allowed to mention any actual issues you know, he, he had to have the, 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 the workings of the Senate be gobbledygook because if you mentioned labor, it seemed Democrat. If you mentioned right. tariffs, it seemed Republican. So they couldn't actually talk about issues even in a general way. Which is weird. Cause this was also like the heyday of McCarthyism, right? Which would have been like right in the forefront of everybody's mind. Uh, and maybe that's the reason why 
the networks were skittish. Um, so anyway, a science fiction show, I think he thought gives me, this gives me a lot more freedom. Yeah. Um, I can actually explore some of this stuff through metaphor, mm -hmm. you know, like why do a show about Joe McCarthy when you can do a show about a community turning on itself in, in a bomb shelter or, or whatever. So he was going to outsmart them with metaphor. And uh, Twilight Zone was a big hit, ran for four or five seasons. Um, that's not the only thing he did when Twilight Zone ended. Serling wrote the screenplays for some hit movies, uh, Seven Days in May, that Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster thing about a military coup in the U.S., which was maybe less funny now than it was then. <laughs> <laughs> Lol. Uh, Planet of the Apes. Um, and he did some TV movies. He did a Christmas Carol update with, um, he reunited Peter Sellers and Sterling Hayden from Dr. Strangelove. Oh, nice. Just a few years later to do kind of a modern day Scrooge thing where Hayden's an industrialist who needs to have three ghosts to tell him how to be a person. But it's a crazy kind of a thing. I think the UN sponsored it. And so the Sterling Hayden Scrooge character is not a miser. He's a, uh, he's an isolationist. Oh, right. Who, Sterling who, Hayden is so good at that type of thing too. Yeah. He's a crusty, you know, uh, I was just watching the long goodbye where he's like a, an angry Hemingway type. Um, but he was a Charles Lindbergh type. Yeah. He's a, he, well, he, he does not believe in the UN and he's, um, he defunds his own nephew's cultural exchange program with Poland. You know, this is, this is our modern version of Scrooge as he's, um, he's insufficiently supportive of UNESCO. Right. <laughs> Cause the UN was going to roll out a series of these things to get America, you know, on board. Um, so it's a very odd cultural curio. Well, except not right. That's a, that is a modern day anxiety too, as we start to defund and dismantle all the internationalist, all the globalist hopes and dreams of the mid 20th century because now they are just part of this one world government. But the UN's not paying TV anymore to trick us into it. Or are they? Wait a minute. Could it, they be? You know what? It's George Soros. Because obviously <laughs> George has been sponsoring this show from the very beginning through his contracts with How Stuff Works to populate all our ad spaces with ads for other How Stuff Works podcasts. I just love it when that seven-figure check from George Soros comes every mm, week. Me too. And he's like, just speak approvingly of uh, One World Government. Keep talking about the, the Federation of Planets from Star Trek. That's why I keep mentioning Star Trek. That's I, why I keep mentioning REM, because George Soros uh, owns the whole, whole REM back catalog. And how does that advance his globalist agenda to mention REM? Because REM's jangly, birds-like tones are one of the things that cause people to stop feeling divided from one another and gathering together in a to, community sphere. Yeah, totalitarianism is impossible when you have enough uh, guitar arpeggios. That's right. That's right. Take a break, Driver 8. You know who Driver 8 is? You. Take a break, Ken. Take a break, Driver 8. Driver 8's not like... Driver uh, 8, take a break. Driver 8's not Reagan? No. No, no, no. Reagan I, didn't reach his destination. The destination he, we're trying to reach is one world, one planet, one people. Uh, among the TV movies, this is the, the old Ken Jennings no segue. Yeah. Among the TV movies... That <laughs> <Reek>. <laughs> so that's enough. That's enough of that. <laughs> whatever, whatever that was. Corinthian, if you could start just uh, inserting a little bit of a record <laughs> scratch right there, just... So among the TV movies that Serling was working on after Twilight Zone packed up was one called The Doomsday Flight. How many minutes into the show? Uh, let's see. The Doomsday Flight was uh, mentioned at, well, counting your 10-minute interregnum where you were playing a video game. You were getting coffee. We're at 39 minutes. I feel like we can do better. Uh, the Doomsday Flight was a kind of a crisp uh, air passengers in peril melodrama that aired on NBC on December 13th, 1966. Everybody loves a passengers in peril story. This does predate a lot of them though. I think this might be kind of an early, an early entry in the genre because Arthur Haley had not yet 
written airport. Um, I think he, Arthur Haley might've done that movie that airplane is based on zero hour. Did you know airplane is based on a non-comedy that Paramount just had the rights to? Is that right? Yeah. Where it's, you know, the same stuff happens, but just without comic effect. Yeah. That's in the late fifties. So it was a genre, a passenger planes in danger and Sterling obviously used it on the twilight zone when he had William Shatner shooting at a gremlin. We have, we have a, a feeling that like hijacking didn't really start until, until the late sixties. But in fact, there was, I mean, plane crashes used to be extremely common and are a lot more common than they are now. And so it was part of the public anxiety in the 60s as we entered the jet age and as it got more and more exciting mm -hmm. that there was also. That's, also a, that's a bad, scary thing that could really happen to you or someone you love. So it's real, it's real or to be mined for a, for a Rod Serling type. Yeah. And we don't, we don't think back at it now because air disasters are like, oh, 250 people died in a cornfield somewhere when a plane went down. We don't remember them all, but it used to happen a lot. I remember as a kid, I would know every number. Oh, TW-800 yeah. or, or the Lockerbie one, which I can't remember now. Wait, was that TW-800 or was 800 the one that like went into Jamaica Bay? One of them. You would actually remember flight numbers. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Korean Air 007 or. Or when an airplane would, you know, like the DC-10 when a when the uh, when a an engine would fall off a wing or mm. there'd be some jack screw, I mean, a lot of that stuff got into the popular vernacular. I wouldn't have known what a jack screw was in our day. Futurelings, um, air travel is widespread. It's middle class and it's safer than ever. Whole years will go by without an American airline having a single fatality, uh, and that was not the case in the early days. Rod Serling actually, you know, some of the verisimilitude in this airplane in danger movie uh, probably came from a family connection. Um, Serling's brother, Robert, was one of the top aviation writers in America. He was UPI's aviation editor huh. back when news agencies when would UPI have an aviation. Was <laughs> UPI not yet owned by the Moonies, I think. Is that right? <laughs> Is that what happened? I think, the, I think UPI might be owned by the Unification Church. Really? It's like the, it's like the National Times of, or the Washington Times. Of, exactly. Of, uh, I think they might both be owned by the same outfit. Um, and Serling, uh, Robert Serling later wrote a mega bestseller, one of these airplane in danger things, the book, The President's Plane is Missing, about a kind of a geopolitical Air Force One thing. Oh, yeah. Which later became a Buddy Ebsen TV movie. And uh, this is what I want to read. There's a sequel to it, Robert Serling's book. Uh, it's an Air Force One drama that involves the, the plot devices that FDR's ghost hangs out on Air Force One. Wouldn't you read that? FDR's ghost? Well, it's, I, an, it's an air thriller where FDR's ghost hangs out on Air Force One. What I'm wondering is when they build a new Air Force One, does like FDR's ghost walk down the gangplank and up the next That's one? That's what I'm saying. FDR, Har didn't, he didn't even have a plane with call sign Air Force One, although he did fly. Right. But like, it, you know, it might be that FDR is actually in the football, in the suitcase with the <laughs> there's, nuclear There's code. some haunted object. Yeah. It, but, it, it doesn't have to be the football. It could be a pack of peanuts or something. But they keep bringing it on Air Force One and that's the only place <laughs> he really feels safe to come out and start like making the toilet seat cold and whatever <laughs> ghosts do. Maybe he's in the machinery. Like he, he is kind of our first cyborg president. He's got the wheels. I think a lot of times when you think it's, when you think you have a ghost, it's actually the woofers and the tweeters in your speakers come out at night and, and they're the ones that are making the toilet seats cold and slamming doors. So there's some kind of subsonic rattle aboard Air Force One. No, it's the actual like woofers and tweeters are both actually little Pokemons. Oh, I thought you were talking about the brown sound again. No, you, you, you think there's two kinds of creatures that live aboard Air Force One. Woofers. They are called woofers who live in the, what part of the plane? 
The speakers. Uh, oh, they all live in the speakers. Yes. Hence the name. And the tweeters. We think of them as types of speakers, but they're actually little characters that, that sing. They're little singing creatures. That is how speakers work. I yeah. didn't know. Well, you're not an, in audio, pro audio like I am. FDR did have a plane for his transatlantic, you know, when he'd go to Yalta or whatever. It was called the Sacred Cow. So we have to assume that somehow his ghost transfers from the Dixie Clipper or whatever he's on to Eisenhower and Kennedy era planes at some point. Yeah. When you think about, um, when you think about all the great airplanes that were kitted out and are gone now, like I think probably the sacred cow is still on display somewhere, but I think about this all the time. Like if I were a rich person, I would not want to have some boring new plane. I would want some Howard Hughes era turboprop or pre-turboprop with cars you want that but with planes they're dangerous like uh, are yeah, you gonna risk your life on this aesthetic choice if you're a really rich person look every every aesthetic choice is you have to put your life at risk if you're going to be serious about it every time you walk I mean, out that's of the actually house, true for some subcultures yeah wearing a wearing a linen suit comes with comes with a lot of risks do you get your ass kicked a lot when you're wearing your linen suit well or what happens if you trip and fall and there's a there's a rusty nail there your linen suit isn't gonna it's not going to protect you like denim. Like, like a, <laughs> and that big fur you have, people are always just throwing animal blood or red paint on red you. Red paint is the, is the big problem. I mean, that's yeah. the worst. My, my head-to-toe wolf coat. <laughs> I mean, the thing about being a, about haunting an airplane is it's a mobile target. I guess, is it canon that ghosts can uh, are not localized to the spot, but can actually follow some kind of moving object? I feel like ghosts... I guess my mother the car... <laughs> Go, ghosts can move fast, short distances. This is my sense of ghost mobility. But they would choose to. Do you think, is, is FDR flying through the air at high speeds just to stay inside Air Force One? Oh, no. I think that, I think ghosts exist within the atmosphere of the container they're in. So I think if you put a ghost in a can, you could take the can. Or a in, thermos. Or a thermos. You could take that thermos into space and the ghost would be in the thermos, not having to chase the spacecraft. You know what? I have come around to this way of thinking. Yeah. Because you think of a haunted house as stationary, but of course the earth is zooming through the universe at yeah. millions of miles an hour. Exactly. The ghost the ghost doesn't stay at his point in orbit that he was when he died. No. Uh, he follows the house. Somehow. Although maybe most ghosts do stay in their in their place and that's why we don't have tons and tons of ghosts. They're all spread across space. And that's why we don't see them. Like if the earth passes through a place where somebody dies, you get an apparition. Yeah, right. Oh. This is all sounding very convincing, and I'm, I think That's this is where Scientology came from, actually. Maybe, uh, maybe, the, maybe all the stars in the heavens are just the, are just the smiling faces of ghosts that we've left behind <laughs> in our trail. So uh, Robert Serling, uh, the creator of FDR's Ghost, I assume advises uh, Serling on his airplane teleplay, because if you watch it, it really does kind of crackle. It's a, kind of an early procedural where you get the idea of what it actually is like to fly a plane and to run a police investigation on an airline. Because it is a, uh, the plot hinges on an extortion. Oh. Um, as the movie starts, we see, uh, it starts at LAX and we see character actor Edmund O'Brien, who you probably have not thought of much lately, but uh, he recently had an Oscar here for The Barefoot Contessa. He's, he's the old guy in a lot of Westerns. He's the uh, newspaper editor and uh, a publisher in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And he's the, one of the old timey outlaws in The Wild Bunch. So we see a familiar face. He's the big star, but he's wearing these Coke bottle glasses and kind of rattling nervously around the departures terminal at LAX. And we're introduced to our other cast, the other passengers that are lining up. This is the love boat kind of introduction. Um, 
John Saxon from Enter the Dragon and Nightmare on Elm Street is, is a vain Hollywood actor who's going to be on the flight. This does sound like an episode of Love Boat. It is Love Boat, except with uh, like a fiery extortion plot. Michael Sarazen, who's about to be a pretty big star in the 70s, briefly for, he's in The Flim Flam Man with George C. Scott. He's in They Shoot Horses, don't they? He's a, a service member in uniform who we learn is just back from Nam and shaken up. Oh, sure. So here's some social commentary on, what, on what's happening to our our fighting men in Southeast Asia. We don't want to focus too much on it, but you can right. have, you can have a, a vet who's had, who's seen some things. He can seem disturbed, but it can't imply that anything is wrong about the war. No, no, no. Just that he personally has been inconvenienced in some way by what he's been through. Yeah. And it's not like he's, he's not going to like fall to his knees and clutch his head and hear helicopter sounds. He's just going to be a little agitated. He's a little shaken up. Yeah. Later, we meet Ed Asner as the head of the airline. Oh, Ed Asner. A, a young Ed Asner who still looks exactly like Ed Asner today. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. When Ed, when Ed Asner was at his, his peak and seemed like absolutely the, the apogee of a, like a middle-aged guy, he was probably 32 years old. That's true of a certain kind of actor. And they, you know, an Abe Vigoda type will live forever. And it's because... We assumed he was an old guy when we first saw him, but actually on Barney Miller, he's, you know, 45. Right. Somebody pointed out to me, and I've heard this multiple places, so I hope the future links have not heard this, that in the new Mission Impossible movie, Tom Cruise is actually older than Wilford Brimley was in Cocoon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard that too. It's pretty wonderful. Because Wilford Brimley was a grandpa looking guy who was actually in his late 40s. Right. <laughs> is that kind of your aesthetic? You want to be the guy who looks like he's, uh, who's always kind of looked like a... A grizzled all-American man at every age. No, I always wanted to be. I mean, this I, as a uh, as a pop musician, I saw this a lot. Where um, I would meet other rock musicians who you could tell had an image of what they wanted to look like, so that sort mm. of like expanded to overshadow what they actually looked like in their own imagination at all costs. And is it is it often youth? Yes. And style centric? Youth and style and just sort of color and shape. So there were a lot of indie rockers that I knew personally who would take the stage and you could just see by the way they moved and the way they perceived themselves internally that they felt that they looked like Morrissey. And then when you would see them off stage and they would, you would catch them even catch a glimpse of themselves in a backstage mirror and, and be shocked again that they were not Morrissey, that they were Sort of lumping. You, you can name a you can name a frontman here, John. <laughs> I'm not going to name all the frontmen. <laughs> he's not Morrissey. He's uh, oh, some other oh, guy. Colin Malloy. No, uh, <laughs> like just a normal, just regular people. And unfortunately, I always wanted to be. Um, I always wanted to be more glamorous than I was. I never intended that I would be as grizzled and shop worn looking as I think probably I am now. Well, it's a great rock look. Because the, you know, the, and Shopworn is kind of the soul of, of rock from the era you, you came up in, right? Well, it is, but that was the pre MTV era. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you, if you go look at the, uh, at the front man of the old 97s, a young man by the name of Rhett Miller, Rhett Miller has a kind of ageless beauty, um, sort of long floppy skater hair. And, uh, he's very pretty and he's a very compelling front person. He's really not that much younger than me. Rhett, I think is, we've, we've told this joke together on stage a few times, even. Um, he's like two years younger than I am exactly, but he looks like he's 27 and I look like I'm 1000 years old. So you can't really choose. I suppose I could go to the gym and I could dye my hair and put 
like uh, hair coloring in my mustache and and try and fake it. But, but at some point, there gets to be something odd about these ageless indie guys yeah. who still have the 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 swooping, swirling bangs. Um, Maybe I mean Iggy Pop somehow looks like he's carved out of of mahogany and looks great. The you, agelessness of Mick Jagger seems right. weird. But yeah, no, I'm the Wilford Brimley of of indie rock. I, I that's good. I actually prefer your look now. I oh. feel I feel like you're you're in your uh, prime oh, as you. a looking like a rock guy. You have an agelessness. I have a baby face, kind of. But you you maintain a kind of like um, still sort of wearing the plaid shirts and cutting your hair in a certain style where you also seem timeless. That is the turkey blood. I uh, <laughs> I drain. Butterball turkeys and I drink their blood. Oh, uh, turkey blood is a thing. No, I don't think so. I, but but like you could be transported to 1955 and walk down the street and no one would say, why are you wearing a life preserver? <laughs> like you would just be like, you would seem like a normal person. Whereas there would be, there'd be 15 things wrong with me that would make me immediately seem like a problem. Well, depending on the era, you kind of look like a hobo. I, well, in every era, I look like a hobo until just the last five years where hobo culture has, has started to dominate male fashion. I am tired of people appropriating hobo culture. I mean, imagine if I showed up in, at your, at your door in 1935. Hi, say, can I <laughs> interest you in a conversation? I'd like to chop some wood. Yeah. I mean, they, the, the best I would get is- You like wouldn't a, even come to my door. You'd come to my window and you'd steal a pie. I'd steal a pie. Is right. And I'd make a chalk mark on your fence. <laughs> what is the, what is the chalk mark? Well, it's a, it's in code. It's only for other hobos to read. Do I not get to know? It's my fence. Well, it was, Is it like game show? Generous game show <laughs> champ lives here. <laughs> Great place for raw turkey blood. <laughs> Speaking of ageless youth, uh, the pilot is played by Van Johnson, former, you know, deeply closeted matinee idol of mm -hmm. uh, Hollywood in the 30s and the 40s. Now kind of an uncomfortable looking... Kind of like when you'd see a, a matinee idol on, on Fantasy Island or Love Boat. He's kind of got the toupee look in this. But he's the pilot, and he's going to get everybody to JFK safely. He was great as a young, beautiful young actor, but then later he became a kind of, uh, he seemed like everybody's dad, right? Well, he lived, for, Johnson. He lived forever. Um, and I don't know if he ever came out, actually. Uh, it might have not have been until after his death. But, he, you know, he was one of the last Hollywood leading men of the 30s because he was still alive or, you know, to, in the... 2000, whatever, or circa 2010, I think. He seemed like the type of guy that would show up on Quincy every once in a while. <laughs> right. Speaking of Quincy, Jack Klugman, most guest appearances on Twilight Zone, I think. Really? Yeah, he was, he starred in like six or seven Twilight Zones. Anyway, so everybody boards the plane and it's only once it's in the air that our Edmund O'Brien Coke bottle guy calls from a payphone and says, there's a bomb on the plane. It's an aneroid barometer bomb. And what that means is uh, it got armed as soon as the plane passed whatever, got to cruising altitude. It's, a, it's an altitude-sensitive bomb. And it is set to blow up, detonate, if the plane gets below a certain altitude. This is the plot of the movie Speed. It is speed with altitude instead of speed. So it really should be called altitude. Altitude. Or elevation. And instead of Keanu Reeves, Ed Asner. Uh-huh. The made-for-TV version of Keanu Reeves. I kind of want to see a remake of Speed now. I kind of want to see The Matrix with Ed Asner. Can you imagine? <laughs> the whole thing's very exciting. It's got like a great Lalo Schifrin score, the Mission Impossible guy. The FBI is called in because, you know, International Airlines Flight 6 is now under the control of this nameless mad bomber. 
The cops are Jack Lord, soon to be McGarrett on Hawaii Five O, mm-hmm. and Greg Morris, soon to be Barney on uh, uh, Mission Impossible. So real cops. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> they were real cops in life, and that's why they kept getting Cop assigned jobs. to be. Yeah, Jack Lord is actually the original Felix Leiter in the first James Bond movie, which you may or may not remember. Oh, of course. So he was a CIA guy and an accomplished painter later in life. I hope Jack Lord's art survives to the future. So they are the ones who have to tell Ed Asner, hey, your plane is um, going to blow up 100, 100 lives at risk. And that's when we realize uh, it's a big TV commercial thing. Jack Lord's wife is aboard the plane. What are the odds boom, that the, boom, boom. the leading FBI investigator is so invested because his wife is one of the passengers? Oh, man. He should recuse himself, right? He should go like sit on a box and let, let people that aren't emotionally involved take this case? I think he's in no position to judge. It would be like... The 25th Amendment removing the president because his daughter's been kidnapped. Right. Speaking of TV plot lines. So we, we cut between, you know, the pilots find out and they have to tell the passengers because they want to search the plane. So a massive, you know, people, passengers start freaking out. Like an airplane, people start kind of tearing the plane apart, seeing if they can find the bomb, even though the guy keeps calling back and is like, oh, you'll never find it. I'm a weirdo. Yeah, that's a good trope, right? The guy is the guy's calling being a weirdo. But you know, a plane is like a sealed tube. It can only be so many places. Yes. So he's, he's, it's he seems quite out. confident. It's I think gonna he's gonna run out of gas is the is the That's the fear, main right? problem. That you know, they can't I, can you do mid air refueling like the Doctor Strangelove credits of a no. of a whatever this is, a DC ten or no, whatever? No, you couldn't. I don't I don't think International Airlines has that at their at their fictional airline disposal. We come to find out that the, uh, from the phone calls that the mad bomber guy, Edmund O'Brien is a disgruntled ex-employee. He's a mechanic who used to work for the airline, um, fired up. Oh, and by the way, his plan is that he just wants money. He doesn't, he's not a terrorist. I mean, he is a terrorist, but he, he doesn't have a political goal. He's, he's not going postal. He's just. He's like, I can only, I can disarm the bomb by telling you where it is, I guess. I'll tell you where it is once you give me a hundred thousand dollars. He's DB Coopering. Yes, basically. Mm-hmm. He's in it for the money. And it's interesting because I guess one of them, as it turned out, uh, 20 years later, one of the, the FBI's main line of investigation of the Unabomber was that he was probably a disgruntled ex-airline employee. That's, that was the profile. Really? Yeah. And I'm not sure why. Because there were, there were no Unabombings of airplanes. He wasn't targeting airports and airplanes, was he? Um, But that actually turns out to be the case here. Anyway, it's all very exciting. It has to wrap up in 90 minutes. Eventually, the the mad bomber winds up at some watering hole where he has a heart attack after t- after confessing to the bartender and dies without ever telling anyone where the bomb is. Okay. So now they've just got a plane and no Triple way twist. to right. And but one thing he has let he one thing he has let slip in a subsequent phone call or maybe to the bartender I, I can't remember is that the bomb will go if the plane descends below like four or five thousand feet, mm-hmm. and that's when our heroes get an idea. Wait a minute. Are there any airports above 5,000 feet? Exactly right. Stapleton Field in Denver. Van Johnson knows immediately. Stapleton Field, 5,250 feet. Where are they uh, geographically during this? So so they're flying, they're supposed to be flying from LAX to JFK, but they turn around fairly quickly and I kind of circle, but they don't have, at some point they turn around, but they don't have enough uh, fuel to get back to LA. So they're already looking for landing sites in the American West. And so Denver's perfect. Sure. And I think at the time, I've, I've read subsequent criticism of the, of, the, of the movie that says that at the time it was not widely known that Denver was the Mile High City because- That wasn't its nickname yet? It was, but the Broncos were not playing at Mile High Stadium. 
My, oh, so it wasn't right. like super imprinted on the culture. Bears Stadium was not Mile High Stadium until 68. And so as a result, it wasn't people's go-to idea of Denver that it was a mile high. You oh. know, the capital step still said you are now one mile above sea level, but it was kind of like the way you might not know that Portland was the Rose City or Seattle was the Queen City then. Ugh. Um, yeah, offensive, right? Yeah. Well, Seattle, Seattle has gone through so many nicknames. The Queen City is meaningless. What are they, um, yeah, well, what is that even? It's it's meaningless. We and then no the Emerald City is also a terrible nickname for Seattle. Jet City was the only good nickname for Seattle. We were Jet City through most of the late 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And we should be Jet City to this day. Jet City is the best nickname for a city. I guess Boeing kind of pulling out in the 70s or, you know, contracting and then moving their headquarters in the 70s and 80s killed off Jet City. That's such a bummer though. Jet City. I'm, I'm, I'm standing my ground on this. Do not call Seattle the Emerald City. It's a, it's a dumb nickname picked by committee. There's still an improv theater and a phone repair place called Jet City here. I, I, I reference it in one of the Long Winter songs. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Jet City. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Anyway, so I think it's to audiences. It was a, today, maybe you'd immediately be like, of course, duh, land in Denver, morons. But at the time it's a big deal. So the plane does land successfully at Stapleton Field in Denver. Um, just with 200 feet to spare. Yeah. At some point, you know, they're all, they've got a half hour left of gas. I mean, it's, it's also more, it's more of a fuel ticking clock than an altitude ticking clock, but I'm, I assume everybody's on tenderhooks because you know, the mad bomber, nameless mad bomber is dead. We don't know what's going to happen. Right. If his altimeter is off by just a couple of degrees. <laughs> right. Or what if it's like a very uh, high pressure day in, uh, oh, right. in like, <laughs> it's a very balmy, you know, <laughs> Oh, the barometer killed you. Death by high pressure system. Um, it turns out to be in the pilot's bag. Uh, oh, Edmund O'Brien slipped it into Van Johnson's carry-on in the terminal. Double, triple twist. They would never think to look there. The one place they would never look. But um, everyone lands safely. And, and you know, one one thing that happens at the end of the movie is Van Johnson says, uh, "You know, most flights everybody forgets, but no matter what happens, they'll be talking about this flight for a lot of years." That's kind of his pilot speak. For a lot of years. For a lot of years. Uh -huh. <laughs> a, a, a totally normal expression that people <laughs> so, used in the 60s. So that's why we coined that phrase and say it all the time. Sure. People will be talking about this for a lot of years. A lot of years. A lot of months. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, that turned out to be prescient. People did talk about the TV movie, The Doomsday Flight, for a lot of years, even though they could not see it. Huh? Because here's what happened. Shortly after it aired, people started calling airlines and telling them 
that there were pressure-sensitive bombs. Hey, there's a pressure-sensitive bomb aboard this flight. You need to pay me some money. In 1970, uh, a Klamath Falls man living in uh, a man from Klamath Falls, Oregon, living in Portland, called in Western Airlines and said, "Hey, your flight from Anchorage to Seattle." Um, has one of them uh, pressure-sensitive bombs from the TV. Uh-huh. Certain, certainly a common style of bomb that that, <laughs> that everyone can build. Yeah, the, it, like a kind of bomb that probably doesn't exist, but everyone knew from this TV show, right? Yeah, a little bit trickier to build, although you certainly could build it. It's definitely, it's scientifically possible, but it's yeah. not like it's a it's a established military technology, pressure-sensitive bombs, right? Well, like air pressure-sensitive. I mean, I, there's just so many other ways you could build a better bomb. right. right. But because Rod Serling put it on TV and he, he, you know, Rod Serling had a lot of, he was a brand, you know, this was Rod Serling's The Doomsday Flight. Right. So this thing for a TV movie got a big audience. Um, and sure enough, Western Air paid the 25000 They're not going to screw around. Um, but how uh, the guy claimed that he could deactivate the bomb from where he was, or he would just he would tell just them tell, where it he was. Would, I'll tell you where it is. So they paid the 25000 and then he was like, ha ha. Yeah. And he gets arrested. The guy, the guy, the guy gets, he does not get to enjoy. His, uh, good. his filthy lucre for a lot of years. Good. I think that guy is dumb and I hope he spends some time in jail. Uh, it happened again in May, 1971, um, uh, Qantas airlines. So this becomes a worldwide phenomenon. A Qantas flight from Sydney to Hong Kong gets a guy call from a guy named Mr. Brown saying, um, I've done one of them pressure sensitive bombs from the TV uh-huh. or the telly. Uh-huh. Maybe he would say the telly. Do they call it the telly in Australia? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to venture. The I bet te- they do. The telemaroo. <laughs> and he says, I want $500,000. Oh, that's quite a bump. And Qantas pays the money. They do? Qantas pays out. And the guy later calls back and tells him, ha ha, with 15 minutes to go before the plane, the plane's got 15 minutes of fuel. And the guy finally calls back and says it was a hoax. And I don't know if he ever got caught. Well, what's interesting about the Qantas flight is that the bomber actually built a replica bomb that he left in the Sydney airport in a locker and directed police to it to convince them that he wasn't bluffing. And so while the plane was in the air, the police went to a locker, found a bomb that actually had real explosives in it with an altimeter connected to it. They D they took the explosives. This is, uh, this is how long this flight was. They took the explosives out of the bomb. They, they defused the bomb. And in place of the explosives, they put an electric light bulb. Rather than just use their brains to see whether or not this would work by looking at it with their eyes. I, because, like, I like the Mr. Wizard approach to bomb defusing. But like the bomb experts that were there were like, yes, this is a viable bomb. But they were like, let's make sure. They connected a light bulb to where the explosives had been. Like wheeled up a Boeing 707 which is the same kind of plane for that. That's not necessary either, but, but they <laughs> just for verisimilitude, they just for verisimilitude, they put the bomb on the 707, took it off from the airport and flew it up to this altitude and then dropped down below the, the, uh, the stated altitude of the explosion and the, to see if the light, and the light on. went on oh. and they were like, this is real. <laughs> This could really happen. Meanwhile, the plane itself is like still puttering <laughs> along and the guys on the phone, Mr. Brown is on the phone with them like, yes, it's real. Did you figure it out? I mean, I can't imagine how long that all took. Like, let's get a light. Who's got a light bulb? Get a light bulb in here. Um, and so they paid him the money and it was a total like 70s, like money handoff. They had 
like a like a mysterious van drove pulled up in rush hour traffic in front of the Qantas terminal, and the president of Qantas threw a couple suitcases in the open window. Some Australian Ed Asner, Ed yeah. o- Ed Osner. Uh, the guy drove off, and uh, they couldn't figure it out. They could, you know, he, it was apparently the perfect crime because he did call right at the last minute and say like, "There's no actual bomb." LOL. It's much easier to put it in a locker yeah. than in a plane. <laughs> <laughs> it is possible to do, but I, but I saved the, I saved the bomb for them. I never read the end of the story. What happened to the guy? Did they get in? So it was the age old problem, right? He got away with the crime. He escaped for, you know, some amount of time. And then guess what? He bragging in a bar over a foster. He went and bought a expensive sports car and his, he had an accomplice and that guy bought an expensive sports car. And it was just a classic thing of like, Hey, two guys came in today and they bought uh, like new Jaguars with cash. And the vanity plate says, uh, uh, says, uh, altitude, (laughs) but they didn't get all of the, they only, they only ever recovered about half the money and the rest of it. It's like in DB Cooper land. Who knows? You know, I love that Australia has its own DB Cooper. Yeah, right. Oh, 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 here's the worst part. He wasn't even Australian. He was English. The pommies. Isn't that what they call them? Pommies? The pommies. Yeah. The, the palms. Hate the palms. Yeah. They're called the, the rigmaroles. That's it, what the Australians call the, them. The only acceptable racial slurs now are the ones that the colonial countries used to call the imperialist countries. <laughs> palms. Um, the movie airs in Canada. Because, uh, you know, these TV movies get repackaged and re-aired. The movie airs in Canada in August 1971. One week later. A British, a BOAC British air flight from Montreal to London gets a call saying, uh, I've put in one of those pressure sensitive bombs from the telly and, or whatever they call it in Canada. Do they have TV? In Canada? Yeah. Yeah, they do. It's made out of logs. <laughs> really? Yeah. Canadian TVs are all made out of logs. And it's stuck together with syrup and it just shows Degrassi all the time. <laughs> uh, and in this case, the airline, the airline has also seen the movie and they divert the plane to Denver. No. Instead, oh, it, booyah. It, instead of paying, they start to steal the uh, law enforcement tricks from face. the movie. Um, because the people, the, but because the hoaxer didn't think to change the altitude requirements <laughs> to defeat the plot of the TV Don't show. Don't say 5,000. It's 6,000 feet. Just make it some random number. If 6,000 feet, they can still go to Leadville, Colorado or something. Yeah. Look on an atlas and pick a higher number, make it 15, dummy. 15,000 feet. There's no place you could land. They don't have enough gas to get to Tibet or Bolivia. So you're going to be fine. So Serling starts getting interviewed about this and says, yeah, I regret, you know, it was a clever idea, but I regret ever putting this idea out there. And so a week after the Montreal incident, the FAA attempts to ban a TV movie for the first and only time in its history and well outside its jurisdiction. Uh, They write a letter to TV stations saying, our great concern is that the film may have a highly emotional impact on some unstable individual and stimulate him to imitate the fictional situation in the movie. Now, of course, the FAA has no authority to to ban a movie. Right. Uh, There's First Amendment grounds here. But this is kind of a different era where, you know, I don't know if just the government has more muscle or if people are more patriotic. It's hard to say when you look back at the past, which of, which of our mores are being enforced? You know, do blind people in the past want to sell pencils or is there some reason that's the only job they can have? It's hard to know, but it works. Many stations agree not to air the movie anymore. The distributor removes it from its package so it doesn't get circulated. And this is kind of, I think, a, a watershed moment in American culture because it's kind of the first time that that I can think of that a piece of art becomes a subject of criminal copycats to the degree that uh, the art itself becomes controversial and illegal. 
Can, yeah. you, can you think of an older? It's 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 not uncommon in our time. It know? happens a lot now. Nowadays, every time there's a school shooting, people will be like, which video game, which violent movie? You know, it's it's commonplace yeah. in our era. Oh, well, uh, it would have to be it would have to be the War of the Worlds. I mean, that was an example maybe and it inspired the Martians to actually invade. <laughs> it inspired, well, it inspired all, all those like disgruntled postal employees to call in and say that the UFOs were, were oh, arriving. Oh, that's true. You could say that the UFO boom of the 40s and 50s was a, was a Orson Welles aftershock. Yeah, maybe. But it's, you, you don't see it in, you know, nobody in the 19th century read Kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson and started doing kidnappings. And I don't... Well, and it could, but it could be like uh, Jack the Ripper inspired copycat killings. Although, although that's not really part of the Jack the Ripper myth. Jack is the it? Ripper certainly did inspire this kind of thing where people would send in fake tips. Right. It's, it's kind of the birth of the fake tip hotline, where so many people send in fake tips that even Jack the Ripper started to have in, send in pieces of kidneys. Right. Or nobody would know that it was actually him. Here's my kidney, boss. Look, come on. It's me with the kidneys. Who else is going to have a bunch of prostitute kidneys? But, uh, you know, th this is very, uh, it's like a new thing in our culture. And the implication, I guess, which is troubling is that everyone would be doing weird crimes. We're just too dumb to think of them. Huh. All it takes is somebody to suggest a good enough crime and people immediately do it. That's troubling, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it inhibits you when you're coming up with great plots for true crime films. It really adds a responsibility to the artist to, you know, make up phony stuff when you're mad bomber character is coming up with his plan or, or your heist film, you know, make sure it's not actually a heist anyone could use on this bank. Right. Or else you might be adding to the sum total of misery in the world. I remember thinking about this on September 11th, actually, you know, like, wow, what a, it turned out to be a super easy thing to do. It just took a, a few guys. Yeah. That was the, what was so diabolical about it. It was and scary. not a thing that anybody had thought of before. And yet here it was a, a brand new era of unthinkable. And I don't even think what scared me was the idea that, oh man, this is easy and could ha easily happen again. It really was like, we were awful enough to do this all along and we're just what too lazy to think of it or something. I mean, that's a very troubling thing to decide about your fellow human beings. The ban did not actually work. In January of 1973, a couple of years after the bomb, the very same hoax happened to a TWA flight between Madrid and New York. Really? Yeah. A call comes in, pressure-sensitive bomb. Authorities were going to send it to Denver. That's, I guess it's kind of a new rule book now. There's no Denver between Madrid and New York, though. Right. Do you have enough fuel? To overshoot New York by three time zones? Boy, that would be a long additional three hours. I guess if you find out early enough and you're just going uh, over the pole, it's not right. that much you longer, right? Mm, well, I mean, yeah. Th there may have been fuel issues because they never actually got to Denver. They ended up- The plane actually exploded over the, the, the ocean. It's a hilarious ending. No, uh, they diverted it to somewhere else slightly closer to that polar route. Um, Strategic Air Command at Ellsworth Air Force Base near Rapid City, South Dakota. Right. Um, which is not above 5,000 feet, but I guess it was like, let's get this plane out of harm's way. And I think it was because they couldn't get it all the way to Denver. Also um, turned out to be a hoax. Also turned out to be a hoax. I don't, I don't know if there's a single case where, but there, but people did, this did kind of coincide with the boom of people starting to take actual bombs and weapons on airlines and threatening them. Uh, to the degree that this was the thing that started airlines putting in 
their own private screening for weapons. Not, it wasn't actual bombing so much as it was these hoax bombings based on this TV show. Yeah. It, it, well, you know, at the same time, I think pe- there were, they did start to be incidents with people showing how easy it was to just take a pistol or a handgun or a grenade aboard a plane. But at the time that Sterling's movie aired, there was no security screening at airports. The first and last line of security was whether employees thought somebody looked a little hinky. That, huh. that was all you could do. A flight attendant who thought some guy was shifty. Uh-huh. And, oh, what could go wrong? <laughs> and so, you know, this is the, the, you know, it's the aftermath of this. All these copycat um, bomb scares is what leads to metal detectors b- being installed at airports, which was not a thing before. Wow. And then again, all the media copycattery to the degree. And I guess kind of the apotheosis of this, which I didn't think about, was in 1981 when someone shot the president because of a Jodie Foster movie they had seen with a political assassination at the end. You know, John Hinckley fixated on the movie Taxi Driver and it almost killed a sitting U.S. president. Didn't John Hinckley kill John Lennon? Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon. Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon. John Hinckley John Jr. Hinkley. tried to kill Reagan. Right. Here's how you remember. John, J-J-J with a J, wants to impress Jodie Foster. Right. Mark David Chapman with a M might not care about Jodie Foster. Right. Okay. That's See? a great, that's, that's a great way of that, that's how I, that's it. how I remember it. And that concludes the doomsday flight. Entry 372.AM0214. Certificate number 41961 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you have survived whatever hoax bombing attempt uh, happened to you at some point in your futureling life. I don't think hoax bombs will end the world. It'll be people thinking they're hoaxes and then they're real. Think about all the people that die from heart attacks. Or, I mean, you know, I, I think futurelings will probably have more than one heart. But you could have, you could have like cascading heart attacks. Hearts attack. Hearts attack. Like a, if an octopus gets very scared and has like a bang, 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 three heart attack. What is scarier to an octopus than an altitude bomb? Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine that octopus changing colors like crazy. You, I mean, there's, there are a few things in life that a, that a rapid dispersal of ink cannot solve. But that is one of them. <laughs> Hijackings are almost certainly one of them. Uh, in the, uh, in the unlikely event that you care about any of this, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Omnibus Project. Uh, you can read Ken's hilarious tweets at Ken Jennings. Tweets and terrorist on threats. Um, you can read my slightly less engaging Twitter, uh, personality at John Roderick. I don't care as much as Ken does. I'm not, I'm not as lighthearted as Ken is. You're on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, which, which I used to think was a friendlier place, but... You know, it's owned by Facebook. It's all owned by George Soros and Monsanto. So none of it's really a safe place. That's actually what I like about it. Hmm. Like, I think if I become a power user, maybe I'll get free Monsanto stuff. Hello, power user. I want free Monsanto stuff. You are very fun on Twitter, although every once in a while you'll make a tweet that's very, very problematic. And uh, I, still get, I still get letters from people going, Ken is very problematic. I feel like I was more problematic, and now I'm just like... If I never say anything problematic that seems edgy at the time, here's the, here's the main problem. When I used people to, I think used to Ken just, Jennings, they think edgy. I used to treat, tweet, treat Twitter. Yeah. Don't, don't tweet don't, Twitter. I used to tweet Twitter, my pet 
terrier. I used to treat Twitter just as like thoughts passing across my brain pan, and then I would immediately send them to hundreds of thousands of people. Right, as we all do. And that's insane behavior because eventually you're going to have some thought that wasn't well-formed, and when you see it in text, you're going to be like, I just said an awful thing about people that I did not mean to. Right, or I just said of whatever thing, but it is interpreted as awful by people. I've definitely done both. You've you've said awful things, but you also have said innocent things that, I mean, there's no limit to the number of people in the I mean, there is a limit to the number of people in the world. I, I believe there's say, a hard limit. There's a hard limit to it. It's changing right now, but you're, but there's no. And now limit. you're and now you're even older, and now you're older still. But there's no limit to the wokeness of such people. Right. There's always going to be somebody that's like, uh, 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 I found something in the Ken Jennings oeuvre that I object to, and that's how I got kicked off the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Nobody objects to me because I. You are objectionable. Well, because it's my brand, right? Go ahead, object to me. I dare you. That's a nice bit of social media jujitsu. Yeah, go ahead. Try it. That's try exactly it. what I wanted you to do. Find a reason to hate object me. Object to me. I already don't like you. What I was going to say is I just treat social media in a much saner way, which is when I have a thought, the, f- I, the first thing I think before I tweet it is, is this something I should show to 200,000 people? Uh-huh. And the answer is almost certainly no. <laughs> So you no longer open the kimono in other words. I no longer say anything because yeah. really, how often, how many times a day do you have something you should say to 200,000 people? Well, that's why I tweet a lot less because when I think, should I share this to, I don't have 200,000 followers, but should I share this to, yeah, my, nice humble break, Ken. to my much smaller group of followers, my, uh, my, my humble little group of semi-famous people followers, I think, eh, nah. eh, eh. And the good thing is you'll lose interest. It's like... Um, you know, one of those locks you put on your fridge if you're trying to snack less. My daughter's mother used to say to me, stop tweeting at me. Like when I would just, we'd be driving in the car and I would say, oh, well, you know, I would just make a, uh, any kind of joke or any kind of observation. She would say, that's a tweet. You just made a tweet at me. You just like, you just spoke a tweet to me. Stop doing that. And when I stopped tweeting as regularly, now she says, Stop podcasting at me. <laughs> like we're just driving in the car and you're just podcasting. And I'm like, I'm talking. We're just having a conversation. She was like, that last three sentences was, was you're just fully podcasting. I did an impression last night to my wife and I can't even remember what the impression was. Angry Scotsman or I don't uh-huh. know. Some just lame impression while we were watching uh, Better Call Saul. And it was immediately the same thing. She was like, I don't need this bonus episode (laughs) of your little show. The greatest burn, the greatest wife uh, burn of her podcasting husband. No thanks, bonus episode. (laughs) Save that for behind the paywall. Anyway, please email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. I mean, we've gotten some emails recently from people that are like, you keep begging us to email you, so I finally emailed you. We're not begging you. When I say please email us, I don't mean... We want to chat. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I'm dying to hear from you, but if you have something you want to say, please do not feel inhibited. That's what I should have been saying all along. Please don't feel inhibited about emailing us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com if you... And, are so inclined. And chronal gap allowing, I believe we reply to every such email. We're, we're personable. Sure. I mean, we have... You, you go through and reply to the ones that interest you, and I have to do all the rest. The, the so one. if you get an email from John, your email was good. <laughs> if you get an email back from me, it was boring, but I felt guilty. The, the ones that come through the, uh, the, the giant swirling storm that sometimes will transport an aircraft carrier all the way back to December 6, 1941. Sure. 
uh, those emails I'll reply to. No, no, no. Initially, you didn't reply to any, and I, I was replying to everybody. And then you got in there and you were like, hello, I will perfunctorily reply to everybody. I feel like you are more perfunctory. Yeah. Maybe. You're like, that sounds great, Jay. Yeah, I do that quite People a bit. love getting the old, that sounds great, Jay. I'm like, cool, thumbs up emoji. <laughs> but you're in there like, ah, yes, your thing is a thing. This reminds me, let me do an impression. Hello. Over email. Hello, I am, as far as you know, I am Ken Jennings writing you back. <laughs> I am not his personal assistant, <laughs> Rodrigo. Also, we've been getting actual mail, including today, a fantastic calligraphied personal letter. Because I said letter writing was a lost art that I did not mourn. You said letter writing was a lost art, and we got a, a letter that appears to be written on vellum and used very good punctuation and and the sentences were all well constructed at the very bottom of the letter there did appear to be a little bit of skew off of a straight edge on like, the signature no no the la- the the last sentence on the first page cuz it's a two page letter the, the handwriting was very perfectly aligned along a straight edge. And then at the bottom, it kind of, it didn't do the thing where it was like plan ahead, but it, it did kind of start to, you can see that the paper had shifted. Way to do a Yelp review. <laughs> Don't send John a beautiful letter. He'll have notes. It was beautiful. And the first thing I asked you was what? Uh, did you lick it? No, I said, is it scented? Oh, is it scented? And you sniffed it. And the one thing missing from this beautiful calligraphy letter was that it didn't also have a dab of the uh, letter writer's uh, cologne. Don't send us unscented mail. We're, well, we're not farmers. We also got a little, like, deer hide. Smoked uh, Manitoba buckskin right. bag containing uh, First First Nations uh, uh, herbal... Root of some kind. Or, and we were told to eat it. Or chew on it. And I offered Ken a piece, and we looked at each other, and we had that moment of, like... Are we going to eat something sent to us in the mail? A piece of wood. By somebody who said, I tan my own leather. Here, chew on this wood. I tan leather definitely not from human corpses, but from deer. Why would he even express it that way? What an odd way to say it. Yeah, and the, and wasn't the tanning, didn't the tanning process involve brains? It said brain tanning, and I don't know what that means. Anyway, we decided that just as you could send us cupcakes full of LSD... You could also be sending us like rice and laced, uh, yeah, or hemlock or something like, mm, try this delicious hemlock. So we decided not to bite into the root, but, but, but this is not a policy. We might totally, if you send us stuff, we might lick it. Look, if you send us LSD cupcakes and are honest about it, I might take Ken on a little journey. I might just go chew on that piece of wood and see what happens. Hmm. Before the next show. Anyway, you can uh, you can send us things. P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Is this the location where I received those two books that you brought to me? One about the Panzers and one about the German uh, approach to D-Day? Yes, people are now sending me Nazi-themed stuff now because of you. So I've been reading this book that arrived in the mail about, uh, it's just a an oral history of D-Day, but from, from the German side. The perspective of the German defenders. Oh, D-Day's happening. That's what they keep saying. It Scheiße! Is, it's a D-Day! <laughs> it is an extraordinary book. I mean, like a mind-blowing account of D-Day, one that you would never find elsewhere. An astonishing book. I'll, I'll mention it again on the show. Never found elsewhere besides my P.O. Box. Besides, that's the only place where it'd be found. P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Also, go visit uh, Facebook, 
Omnibus Futurelings Group, which keeps growing uh, by leaps and bounds. Exponentially, like some kind of a Petri dish. It's a fun, fun place full of fun, fun people who like talking about Pokemons. Pokemon. Pokemons and mail They they don't like it when you pluralize it. Pokemon. Moen. Mo. Pokemon. French. Mr. Mime is a Pokemon. Pokemon. Pokemon ami. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. It's not looking good. Hurricanes are closing in. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. And it was so long, you probably didn't listen to our final words. Don't skip the outro. (laughs) But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.